Hi, and welcome to Axel Bank Reports History and Today. Conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axelbank, and today we're going to speak with Sarah Milov, the author of The Cigarette, A Political History. This is Professor Milov's first book. She's a professor at the University of Virginia and focuses on the United States in the 20th century and how interest groups work. Professor Milov, thanks so much for being here. Great to be with you, Evan. Uh, we're thrilled for this discussion. I think it's going to be a great topic because uh, cigarettes and, of course, their lobbyists, maybe even more so, um, have had such an impact. Um, I looked up some, some statistics, and um, cigarette smoking is the leading cause of preventable disease in the United States, accounting for more than 480,000 deaths every year. Um, and that's incredibly one in five people who die, die because of cigarettes. Um, in the United States, most don't smoke, um, but there are still 35 million smokers here. Um, and as I learned from your book, there's an entire lobby dedicated to keeping them legal and in the hands uh, of, of everybody, but especially young people, because they can certainly make a lot of money if they start you young. So my first question is, is there any other product that we ingest that is so obviously destructive that has had the staying power of cigarettes? I mean, I think you know the answer to that. It's, it's obviously no. It's pretty clear that if a cigarette were to be invented today, it would not be legal. But the cigarette has um, tobacco and cigarettes more recently have tremendous staying power and political importance in the United States, which accounts for their longevity despite their lethality. Yeah, so we definitely want to explain uh, explain that. And so your book, let's go back to the beginning of all this. Now, you start the narrative in the early 1900s when there is this kind of divide that opens between tobacco farmers and those who work in the fields. You write that, um, and this is a quote, the political economy of tobacco is a thicket of contradictions fitting for a deadly substance that stimulates and relaxes. So uh, I, if you can explain two things. First of all, the roots of tobacco in what we now call the United States. Well, tobacco's history uh, within what, what is now the borders of the United States, you know, go back even to the 17th century, go back to uh, the, uh, you know, the, the experiment at Jamestown and the um, exporting of, uh, of tobacco back to uh, England and, and from there on to Europe. And also it's intertwined with, um, obviously, enslavement and the use of um, African-Americans as chattel slaves to produce this uh, deadly but uh, highly profitable uh, substance. So tobacco has, you know, its, its origins uh, in the U.S. in plantation slavery. Um, but what I think many people don't fully appreciate is, you know, the cigarettes history is actually much more recent. It's not until really uh, the 1930s and especially the 1940s that cigarettes become the primary way yeah. to ingest tobacco. So explain that. So how was it ingested before and then when does and why do cigarettes become popular? Yeah, so um, in the late 19th century, in the late 1800s, you know, it's an era of industrialization, an era in which um, manufacturers are putting more money into, tried, into mechanizing various processes that had been done by hand. And there's a cigarette rolling machine um, that's invented. There's actually many different cigarette rolling machines uh, competing out there in the, in the market. But one is, uh, one is designed, and that patent is bought by James Duke, 
Um, and Duke incorporates this into uh, into his manufacturing processes. And he doesn't really see the benefit of it right away because even still in the late 19th century, human hand rollers, which is to say young children, because mm. children that have the, not, not just the dexterity, but are a source of cheap labor, um, they're still seen to be more um, reliable and efficient than uh, this rickety uh, device. But eventually the device itself uh, is improved upon um, and cigarettes become mass-produced. So the technological capacity to, to make mass-produced cigarettes uh, precedes its uptake by most Americans. So why is this? Well, in the late 19th and early 20th century, um, cigarettes are seen as a vice. They're seen as something not wholly American. They're seen as something, and indeed they are something that tends to be uh, um, consumed and enjoyed by uh, immigrants, specifically uh, the types of immigrate, immigrant populations that native stock uh, Americans uh, don't want in the country anymore. They're favored by uh, Italians, Southern Europeans, and Jews. So it actually takes uh, quite quite uh, a few decades for uh, the cigarette to become, in a sense, domesticated and seen as a habit that uh, native-born Americans uh, would partake in and not yeah. just, uh, you know, immigrant, immigrant boys uh, yeah, in New York City. Gonna, we're definitely going to talk about that because um, it became such a symbol of masculinity and of gender. Um, and as you write about that in the movies and things like that. So we are going to talk about that. Um, but before we get to that, you know, one of the arguments that you make is that the New Deal winds mm. up being a pivotal moment in how this industry works. Um, can you explain why that is and how the different rules around um, agriculture and the way the Roosevelt administration starts to approach how crops are grown, changes how tobacco is grown and then ultimately distributed? Yeah, I think when most people think about the New Deal, they think about you know, uh, unemployment relief, they think about social security, they might think about the power of um, labor unions getting a real boost, they might think about the uh, amazing WPA posters and the creation of uh, national parks. Um, but one perhaps underappreciated element of the New Deal was the wholesale revolution in agriculture uh, that it uh, initiated. So prior to the New Deal, during the 1920s, in tobacco, it's a period where more people are smoking than before. And it's also a period where uh, there's been a cratering of, of prices for other commodities, which means that during the 1920s, many new, there are many more farmers who want to try their hand at tobacco. Now, once the well, depression... Well, why, do they get, why are they attracted to that? What, what is it about about tobacco that makes them say, I can make a buck here? Uh, the It has a high labor requirement, but there's not that much capital that went into it. And in part, this is an interesting, um, unique feature of tobacco. Tobacco ends up being very late to mechanize. So whereas if you were um, producing, you know, um, cotton or, or wheat, you might actually need to invest in... Um, more machinery. You might need um, a tractor um, or other types of agricultural equipment. In tobacco, if you had labor 
and some land, you could grow uh, and make a decent profit at tobacco. It's a uh, labor-intensive uh, crop, but one that does not require a tremendous amount of acreage to um, to be profitable. Unlike, of course, the vast um, fields of of wheat or corn. So it's kind of dense in where it is. Exactly. Yes. Okay. So during during the twenties, more people are trying their hand uh, at tobacco, particularly in North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, and parts of Florida. And once the depression hits that it, it poses kind of this, this conundrum. So the price of tobacco craters, but all an individual farmer can do in light of such a situation is to produce more and more tobacco, which further erodes the price. So what's individually rational for uh, each farmer ends up being irrational on a population level. And this is kind of a classic collective action problem. And this this problem is not just faced by tobacco farmers, it's faced by all farmers, but there's just been this expansion in uh, tobacco acreage uh, in the 1920s. So what the Roosevelt administration does is it says we have to stop this, uh, you know, uh, irrational production. We need to rationalize production and stop farmers from overproducing. And so what it does in tobacco is it basically says that whatever you produced uh, as a farmer on, in 1933, you will produce half of that. And your license to produce, say, three acres of tobacco is going to be called your allotment. So it basically establishes a licensure system for production. And farmers are, in, I guess you can think of it as, in exchange for growing uh, uh, on a quota system, they're guaranteed a minimum price at auction when they sell their tobacco. This is a huge intervention into how tobacco had been grown before, right? You know, you could produce as much as you wanted and you were free to receive as little as the tobacco companies offered you um, at auction. Um, so this and is... Now, this yeah, and so, and, and then so just explain the change again. So then now... There's a there's a bottom price. There's there's a price floor set under, uh, uh, you know, under tobacco prices. So a farmer can't fall below a certain price. He's got essentially. You can think of this as the agricultural equivalent to a minimum wage, which in fact many new dealers were kind of conceiving of these things at the same time. That there is a kind of minimum standard of living that we want to assure that Americans have, and you know a large percentage of Americans were still involved in agricultural pursuits. So having these price minima made a lot of sense if your goal overall, taking a step back from agriculture, if your goal overall were to re-inject, you know, purchasing power, you wanted to get American spending again. So this type of dramatic intervention into uh, the market made a whole lot of sense if you just wanted to, to get those dollars flowing. Yeah. So, so now that it, the dollars are flowing and now that they've got these kind of, you know, this, this government intervention on their behalf, um, then your narrative kind of turns to the kind of commercialization, uh, commercializ commercialization of, uh, of the tobacco and the cigarettes themselves. And, you know, one thing so many of us are familiar with is the advertisement because we've all Google imaged the ads and we've seen, um, you know, looking back 70, 80 years later, how sort of ridiculous it was to see them talking about these things like they're going to give you health and vibrancy and all the right. things that we know 
now are the opposite of, of what cigarettes give you. And also maybe because of the, the show Mad Men, which shows right. how ad companies came up with this idea to call cigarettes. I'll never forget this line. They wanted to call cigarettes toasted uh, in quotes. Um, and there's a line in this in Mad Men where they say to each other, all we have to do is make people think they're going to be happy. So how can you or can you describe how cigarettes are advertised before there was this kind of widespread acceptance um, that these things were not good for you? Well, the history of tobacco and the history of advertising um, are entirely intertwined. The advertising industry in the United States really uh, revs up actually in the 1920s, you know, the, the first kind of consumer boom in the United States, um, where many different products are uh, being advertised uh, in, you know, new ways and color advertisements in magazines um, with advertising agencies hiring more and more people to work for them. Um, and also it's related to broader changes in politics. So during the 1920s is an era of, um, you know, uh, Republican uh, uh, presidents, Republican uh, rule in Congress, an era where, you know, famously the business of government is business and there's these huge tax cuts. And what what businesses do with the tax cuts in many instances and was true with tobacco is to plow that money into advertising. Um, and so, you know, the tobacco advertisements um, kind of become more prominent in the 1920s. Um, and I think uh, it might surprise some people to know that uh, Marlboros were, you know, now this symbol of, you know, rugged masculinity, mm. the cowboy and all that were initially advertised um, to pursue the women's market. Oh, uh, uh, they were advertised as mild as May. And you, um, and you see all these ads where they, they, they show like a, a woman in sort of a bathing attire, whatever passed for it back then, and they're right. slender and they're happy and they're holding a cigarette. And right, yes. Lucky Strikes had this. To see it. Yeah, I know, right. Lucky Strikes had this um, advertising uh, campaign that on, on the one hand was trying to um, exploit kind of the association between um, suffrage and liberation and smoking, um, but at the other time, at the, on the other hand, play into women's anxieties. So they had this whole um, uh, campaign called Reach for a Lucky Instead of a Sweet, uh, where they, you'd show a, 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 an overweight uh, woman um, diving into a pool and then a slender woman with a, uh, a lucky strike in her hand. Right. This is your antidote, right? This is, your, right. <laughs> this is the antidote. Right. Don't eat, smoke instead. Perfect idea. Um, uh, did everyday people believe the advertising? You know, sometimes we'll see an ad for something today and you look at, you know, you look at the person next to you and you go, oh, come on. I know that's not true. Um, did everyday people buy this? Well, if you judge by the increasing numbers of people who smoked, the advertising was having an effect. And if you judge by the amount of money that uh, the cigarette companies were putting into spending on advertising, they sure believed it was having an effect. Right. Um, and I think if you just think about, you know, our recollections of those times, or let's think about Hollywood movies, another industry that grew up alongside the cigarette, um, you know, this was, this contributed to how people understood what a cigarette was and the, the meaning um, that they in, invested in it. So, you know, I don't know if they, people really believed um, 
necessarily all of the claims that were made, you know, yeah. by, by cigarettes, but they, uh, their consciences were surely assuaged by the fact, for example, that, you know, Chesterfield uh, featured advertisements with physicians in them. Right. And, and we all see, you know, uh, I'm a doctor and I smoke these. Exactly. Um, uh, uh, explain how they got into movies, because I think it's just fascinating when you watch, you know, a movie from the 40s or 50s and it's like ubiquitous. There's, a, you know, the, the, the white male is holding the cigarette and he's proud of it. And it has become this kind of status symbol that I'm a strong, you know, cowboy and I don't go anywhere without these. Yeah, you know, I think overall in the the history of the 20th century history of tobacco the, the a lot of these images that we have about tobacco reflect different ways of organizing the economy. So the studio system in Hollywood, which was a system of a basically cartel organization by major studios where the studio would basically um own a film product, but and also down through the distribution chain all the way down to the movie theaters, but also own the labor of actors who were signed to a particular studio. Those studios had contracts with the cigarette companies. So this cartelization in cigarette firms was mirrored by a cartelization um, amongst the Hollywood studios. And so the studios would tell their stable of actors, you know, appear with these in your hand, or we're going to um, have a movie uh, where this brand might be shown, or, or, or at the very least, you'll be shown smoking. Um, Ronald Reagan, for example, uh, uh, during his work in the studio system, was also, um, also did advertisements for Chesterfield cigarettes. So, they, I mean, they literally put hand, uh, cigarettes in the hands of famous actors, knowing that this was going to be a successful tool. Yes, and celebrities were used in print advertising for, um, for those particular brands, too. Uh, it, it's, it, it's amazing. Um, uh, it, was this among the first type of product placements, or had that been always going on? Um, I'm not sure I know about if I could period, if I could say like, what was the first, but given, um, I mean, even during the 1940s, like given the, the strength and prominence of the tobacco industry, it would, it was probably the most important. Yeah. And so here's another question about this and, and forgive me if I'm going too far with this, but it reminds me of like in home alone when someone says, you know, fuller go easy on the Pepsi. Um, did they talk brands in the movies or was it merely just the cigarette as a generic symbol? I think as a generic symbol, but what was absolutely specific is um, for the print advertisements um, where, you know, you'd see an image of a celebrity smoke, Lucille Ball smoking, and then there'd be like a quote underneath um, about why she preferred this or that brand. That was a reflection of um, agreements hammered out between uh, between industry and um, uh, and the, the between respective industries, Hollywood right. and the cigarette industry. All right. So now, so this is all leading up to 1964, and this is actually the opening scene in your book. Um, and there's this press conference where the Surgeon General um, Luther Terry is going to announce that the results of their report. They have done a, a report that was hundreds of pages. I think you said it was 400 pages. 
And there was anger among the reporters that there were um, <laughs> no smoking signs suddenly put up in the room where the press conference was going to be. Um, but describe the change that goes through public opinion after this press conference where the Surgeon General announces, hey, folks, this is what cigarettes do. Yeah, so in 1964, the Surgeon General, who, by the way, prior to cigarettes, the figure of the Surgeon General was not all that important. I'm not sure that many people could name who the Surgeon General is today, but let's just say in eras past, between 1964 and, well, let's say, uh, 2016, people may have known who the Surgeon General, General was. Cigarettes make the Surgeon General um, a figure of importance. But mm. Luther Terry um, uh, announces uh, to, uh, during a press conference, which, by the way, is held on a Saturday so as not to royal the stock market, um, that uh, the, res the results of um, a two-years-long intensive study by a panel of you know, nation's top doctors um, and scientific uh, public health experts uh, are in, and that uh, they have concluded that, the cigarette, that cigarettes cause lung cancer and cardiovascular disease. And even the composition of this panel reflected the influence of the tobacco industry. Obviously, the tobacco industry um, would, was vitally interested in any uh, government panel um, designed to interrogate public health research about the relationship of smoking and disease. And obviously, Luther Terry uh, understood that this would be a significant political document. So Terry basically sought out to create a politically unimpeachable document um, by allowing the tobacco industry to veto um, any name put forth to serve on the panel. Uh, so that way, basically, the tobacco industry was you know, able to make sure that, uh, from its perspective, nobody automatically suspect nobody with a long history of anti-cigarette positions uh, would end up on the panel. And um, in, also in service of Terry's goal of having a politically unimpeachable document, uh, five people on the panel were to be non-smokers and five people were to be smokers. Uh, now, by the end of the panel's um, you know, meetings, uh, only a couple were smokers. The rest had quit. Terry himself had uh, given up the habit and moved to smoking an occasional pipe. Um, but this announcement, um, you know, did garner a lot of attention, but it didn't change people right away. After a couple months slump in cigarette sales, they were buoyant and back again by 1965. And so how long does it take for public opinion to go, you know, these may not be so good? So what I found in my research and what I show in the book is, you know, the major turning point is not this, you know, federal proclamation that cigarettes are harmful, uh, that cigarettes can kill you, in fact. What was a, a major turning point was the advent of what I call the non-smokers rights movement. Right. And this movement really got lift off in the early 1970s. And, you know, it, its agents were not agents of the federal government. They were not necessarily people who had backgrounds in public health, but in many cases were um, uh, women, sometimes housewives, who, you know, beseech their local uh, city council people to change 
laws at the local level to make it difficult to smoke in public places. Yeah, and they're basically saying, I don't smoke. Why should I be subject to it? Yeah, their argument is pretty, is, you know, kind of um, libertarian. It's you can smoke if you want, but don't subject me to your habit. I don't want to breathe in your disgusting, uh, the disgusting air. Yeah, and, and, and it's funny because, you know, nowadays, um, uh, certainly if someone is smoking inside, it's like people turn around immediately and go, where, where, you know, wow, where that's, you know, where's that coming from? But, but back then there was this kind of push and pull between how much rights or how many rights each, uh, each group had. And, and your argument is that non-smoking became just as much of a status, if not more so than the smokers. Yeah. I mean, what the non-smokers rights movement sought to do, um, was to make so, uh, smoking, in their words, socially unacceptable. And this was uh, a deliberate tactic that understood that as long as the cigarette industry could continue to frame smoking as just an individual choice, then, they, then non-smokers would not win. Because if it was an individual choice, you can't necessarily control what somebody else does. And if there's a warning label on the pack, well, then the individual has been warned. It's his decision whether or not he will accept the risk. And then so, how does the, oh, go ahead. Oh, yes, so, wait, so the goal of the non-smokers rights movement was to say all of that stuff about individual risk is, is well and fine in the, in the confines of your own home. But as soon as you get outside, you're subjecting me to your choice. Yeah, and so now that the industry senses this threat, um, how do they respond, both at, you know with advertising and with how they distribute their product? Well, so you know, at first, um, these activists have this remarkable success at the local level. By 1975, there's been there were hundreds of ordinances passed all across the country that, that by our standards today would not seem that striking. For example, they might uh, limit, uh, they might call for non-smoking sections of uh, certain public spaces like movie theaters or um, libraries, or maybe they'll ban smoking entirely in certain public buildings or spaces of certain public buildings. But by our standards today, you'd say, well, you're definitely in a world where tobacco smoke is ubiquitous. And there's industry documents that basically show that the industry was caught flat-footed, that they were caught you know, unawares that this trouble was brewing um, out in the States. Um, and so what the industry eventually uh, figures out how to do, but this is not till the 1980s. This is after a decade in which the non-smokers rights movement had Kind of rooted at least in in some in some way in the public consciousness was to pass laws that are known as preemption laws, which basically um, are so that uh, a state in a, a state house would pass a law that is weaker than a local law, mm-hmm. and preemption is a kind of a legal doctrine of U.S. federalism that says a locality cannot go further than what, the where the state can go. Yes, you say them, you see them, I mean, you see them in Virginia with Confederate monuments. Right, right. <laughs> locality can't vote to take down their monuments. So they, right. they try this um, preemption uh, uh, gambit 
um, in the 1980s that did, and 1990s that did um, for a while dampen enthusiasm for local ordinances. Um, let's talk about the, de the, the decline of smoking rates. It's, it's mm -hmm. significant and it's certainly, um, you know, I would think um, would be seen as a success among policymakers, at least those who um, are against smoking. 67% uh, uh, of adults um, uh, 50 years ago were smoking, and then it was 42% in 1965, 14% in 2017. Um, and youth smoking has fallen even further, 68% uh, to 8.8% in that same time period. So smoking rates have declined, and in some ways this has worked. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but w one thing that following the trajectory of the cigarette over a longer period of time, one dynamic that it illuminates are the ways in which the opponents of smoking help to foster a political culture that was fundamentally elitist. So non-smoking rights activists were for the most part white and educated and middle class. And they pursued a kind of activism that sought to wield stigma as a tool of public policy. So, for example, at workplaces, um, non-smoking activists would basically argue that smoking workers were bad workers, that they took breaks, that they damaged equipment, that they were sick too much, um, and therefore uh, um, workplaces should adopt non-smoking policies. And you would see this even out in the, in the public sphere too, that uh, smokers are uh, a drain on taxpayers. And so, you know, the kind of political culture that uh, the non-smokers rights movement fostered, sometimes, sometimes purposefully, sometimes unwittingly, or sometimes just because they were throwing anything at the wall and that's what stuck, um, is one I think that we still, that is reflected in who still smokes today. Smokers tend to be, you know, poor and less educated. Uh, than non-smokers. And I, I don't think that there's a wellspring of sympathy uh, for people that smoke. Interesting. Um, I guess that leads perfectly into this next question, which is, um, has there ever been an effort to actually ban cigarettes? Now, we did see President Trump um, sort of toy with this idea of whether it would be okay to um, make restrictions even tighter on electronic cigarettes. Mm -hmm. But um, has there ever been an effort to actually say these need to be illegal in the United States? Um, yes. So one one goes back to the deep history um, of or deeper history of cigarettes that we spoke of at the beginning of our conversation in the nineteen early twenty in the early twentieth century. There were, I guess you could call them smoking temperance advocates. And this is coming right out of a kind of eugenicist, nativist line of thinking that succeeded in passing very early uh, anti-smoking ordinances. And they sp spoke about wanting to ban smoking. They were smoking prohibitionists. Um, but that history aside, today in, uh, in public health circles, there are scholars... Um, and researchers who speak of the tobacco end game. 
and they do advocate for the prohibition of um, cigarettes, um, though I have not seen any evidence that there's um, been uh, uptake of this idea by um, politicians. And why? We know how dangerous they are. Why? Why don't people say this is costing taxpayers, this is costing the healthcare system, this is a tax on our hospitals, people are dying, families are saying goodbye to loved ones. Why hasn't that taken hold? You know, I think, you know, that's, that's a really interesting question. And my, my mind goes to two places. And, and maybe they're actually related. I'd like to know what you think. First is we are numb to that 480,000, half a million deaths each year. The political system has metabolized this into something that we're willing to accept. And because there is still the idea that people choose to smoke, despite the fact that there's decades upon decades now of research that says most people who begin smoking begin as teenagers, you know, begin before, you know, the legal age of majority, before they can truly consent and they become addicted. So despite that, there's still this, that, that argument that the tobacco industry pursued in 1965 uh, still continues to pay dividends in how we think about smokers. Um, and I suppose our more unfortunate and you know, recent brush with mass excess death in this society is showing the willingness of society to tolerate hundreds of thousands of people each year dying. And what's interesting to me is that the, um, I assume, you're, I know you're talking about coronavirus there, mm -hmm. but coronavirus itself didn't lie to us. Mm. Whereas the smoking, the, the cigarette companies did lie. Um, and yet there's still an acceptance that this is the cost of doing business in America. Yeah, absolutely. And that argument that the individual chooses to smoke, that argument brilliantly pioneered in the 1960s, I think is still operative. I don't, my other answer, I think might go to, to the direct, you know, corporate question that you're pressing, which is, I think that the, um, the rhetorical value of the prohibition, the alcohol prohibition movement is tremendous across a, a wide range of uh, corporate domains. You know, for the, during um, post 1960s, the tobacco industry branded anybody who wanted any amount of cigarette regulation, you know, as a prohibitionist and a zealot. Um, and so I think that the, the experiment in prohibition, which most people now today would not like to undergo again, ha is, a, is a mental block in thinking about other commodities and practices we don't want to have in society. Hmm. Um, so then the question then becomes, is this industry going to still be here in 50 years? Are we still going to have smokers and cigarettes? You know, pick, pick yeah. <laughs> um, Yes, though what people smoke, I don't know, will look, I don't know if it will look like a traditional combustible cigarette, right? Like as the, as um, the popularity of e-cigarettes, especially among young people, um, you know, grows. I'm not sure that once the 
Z generation is um, 40, if, they're, if they continue to be addicted to nicotine, I, I don't suspect it will be in the form of a combustible cigarette. But I think that this, I mean, if you look at the long history of um, substance use, not just in America, but in the world, I think that it, it's hard to imagine uh, this society not, um, not using nicotine. And if, if the society is using nicotine, it's, it is hard for me to imagine that the cigarette industry the tobacco industry would not figure out a way to deliver it at a profit. You know, I, I was going to, um, the way I had it written down here is um, I'm afraid to ask if I'm afraid to ask, can the industry survive? I was going to ask, <laughs> how is it going to survive? Because it always has survived. Um, uh, and you answered that question. Um, lastly, um, how can the fight against cigarettes and that industry inform us about the battles with other lobbying groups, environmental ones come to mind? oil, et cetera. Yeah, I think, um, you know, the story of tobacco, you know, people speak of the tobacco playbook to point at the um, perfidy and deceitfulness of industry, and as well they should. But I think the tobacco playbook also holds really hopeful and inspiring lessons for activists. What the tobacco playbook, the anti-tobacco playbook shows is that really meaningful action can be taken on a local level, um, that action can be meaningful in its own right, in that it can um, inspire the passage of laws, local laws, let's say, that change people's practices. But in inspiring those laws and in organizing around local laws, you know, movements can develop that could press for more substantive action um, at the federal level. And um, so I, I, I actually think this history, you know, like all histories, is complicated, but there are lessons that I think perhaps um, climate activists or um, anti-gun activists could extract. Fascinating. Uh, Professor Sarah Milov, author of The Cigarette, A Political History, uh, thank you so much for joining us. It was my pleasure. Thank you, Evan. We appreciate it. Certainly check out her book, uh, The Cigarette, A Political History. Also, she's active on Twitter. She's a great tweeter, so make sure you check, uh, check that out. She's at all of Milov, A-L-L-O-F-M-I-L-O-V, on Twitter, fantastic Twitter feed. And thank you for listening to Axelbank Reports History and Today, Conversations with America's Top Nonfiction Authors and Why Their Books Matter Right Now. Be sure to check us out on Twitter and Instagram at Axelbank History. We update those with clips from the show, with guest announcements and book recommendations. We will see you next time. Thanks. Thanks.